Addiction podcast. It gives me great pleasure to invite Brian Lim to the show, host of the Building Pickable podcast. I absolutely love Brian's podcast. He has a voice for podcasts and not in a rude way. Has guests, great guests, and in general, he's just really good to listen to. Welcome, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. So, um, you're out of Austin, right? Yep. And thanks for getting up so early to to, to join us in the show. It's like quarter past seven now, your time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no sweat, man. Uh, I know what it's like to try and book guests and uh, to do this podcast thing. So uh, happy to uh, just make the right arrangements to make it happen. And also you're in the UK. So thank you for taking the time to do this as well. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm a long, I'm a, I mean, I say a long-term listener of your podcast. Your podcast hasn't been around like years and years and years or anything like that. But I mean, I, I listen to it all the time. Um, but for people that haven't listened to your podcast yet, hopefully just go subscribe uh, and they will after this. But um, tell them, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so if I date just back to Pickleball, just uh, to give like a frame of, ref- frame of reference for the podcast, I got into Pickleball in 2020, was playing pretty consistently and then um, come up, came out with a podcast about... 10 or 11 months ago and it started off as a general curiosity for founders in this space and their stories like a lot of that came from my own dad was an entrepreneur and then just being curious about those stories and i was also of course i listened to podcasts like how i built this and always been fascinated by stories especially after reading like steve jobs biography about walter isaacson and so often we get to see the final product or the finished product or the this like persona that's just conveyed through media but rarely do we get to hear from the person themselves rarely do we get to hear like why they started things what challenges do they face and also like in some ways i did it selfishly for myself because i knew i wanted to start a business so how could i get some of that information and in a sense i went indirect uh, like it was kind of like an accent, but I went directly to the source and also made a lot of friends along the way. So, uh, yeah, just wanted to fall, just wanted to share their stories that they had. I knew that there's definitely some like interesting people in the space. And then now it's opened up to not just founders, but maybe people that work for certain brands like Carl Schmitz from USA Pickleball players. I had Rob Nunnery, much like you, you had Rob Nunnery as well. I've had different players and I'll continue that down that Avenue as well. But, uh, yeah. I totally agree. Like, uh, it's exactly why I started doing an interview-based podcast as well, because people's stories are interesting. What people are doing in Pickleball is interesting. Like, you don't always get to hear what people are doing. And I think, I think for me, that kind of makes for, you know, the, the most interesting kind of podcasts. And I was just telling you before the show, like, when yours comes on, I'm, that's the one I download. Like, a lot of the other podcasts I listen to are, like, all news-based. And they're all kind of, you know, they're all doing, they're covering the same news in a different way. Um but uh, yeah, I really love the getting behind the scenes and uh, listening to, to those stories. So thanks for what you do. Like, I really appreciate listening to the to the interviews. Oh, man. Thanks for watching. So you're a former, well, okay. So you're a former MMA fighter, pastry cook, and UX designer. And now you're in pickleball. So that's quite a mix. Like, <laughs> tell us how, how you got down that road. 
Gosh. Yeah. I never really know how to answer this question because it all just kind of happens. I guess I'm just such a, I don't, I don't even really know, like just a very goal oriented guy. And I was just looking, it's actually like probably something, a flaw of mine, but anyways, I got into jujitsu first. I used to watch fights back in the day all the time with my brother. We watched K1 pride and those are some of the older organizations. And then during college, I got into jiu-jitsu, found a local gym, and the goal was always to eventually be professional MMA fighter. The aspirations, very lofty goal and dream was to go into the get into the UFC. But I started off with jiu-jitsu first, found a coach. His name was uh, his name is Tim Mannon, and it was right by my school, this university, very small school, and he was actually he had actually had a career as a professional MMA fighter. So I knew like, okay, as long as I like start doing jujitsu, then I can pick up MMA from him as well. And I told him my like goals and he said, okay, let's build you up a base first. So I want you to get your blue belt in jujitsu and then we could talk about fighting. So that was like the only thing on my mind at the time and got my blue belt, had two fights. I think my first fight ended in like 30 seconds or something like that. My second fight that may have gone to the second round or it was just like a minute and a half or something. Uh, this is just bad memory, not caused by concussions, but I've just always had bad memory. Um, and then just, just kind of like fast forward. I moved back home. I graduated and I took about like four years off fighting. Cause I was trying to figure out like, what do I want to do with my life? And I made the mistake that a lot of other people make and they just try to follow society and what they tell you to do and try to almost listen to too many of your peers rather than listening to yourself. So I got into sales. I tried to do that. Just didn't really go well. You know, that's just not my vibe. I got into customer support. Grateful for that experience. Grateful for both experiences. They tell me a lot, but um, I took a very long road to get to where I'm at now. And anyways, I did fighting. I got back into it around the time that my dad passed away in an accident. And I just felt like I needed to, you know, like not let his, let not let him die in vain. And I don't think that anyone really should. I think if someone close to you and meaningful to you passes away, it should alter your life. It should change your life for the better. And that's what happened to me. And I pursued mm -hmm. fighting again and I went eight and two as an amateur and had my one pro fight, uh, during my amateur, I was like the number one featherweight in the state of Virginia. And I held three titles and then I went pro and fought in the Baltimore Royal farms arena. I lost a match by split decision but I got to fight on the same card as the guy that I was training with. His name is Cisco Asada. And, you know, I was with my new coach at the time, Greg Souders of San Jiu-Jitsu. And it's just like this incredible experience. And I had like a great time. All my friends and family were there. I just couldn't believe that many people actually cared about what I was doing at the time. And it just felt uh, like, a, like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. So I felt like, okay, like I, I did it in some sense. I got further than I expected, but not as far as I wanted. And I was okay with that. And I was like ready to just hang it up. It's also just very overwhelming. I think I'm, it's difficult to say, but I don't know if I'm cut out to be a fighter. It's just very, very hard. Um, 
Yeah, it's, I, I won't go into the details, but it's a very, very difficult journey. So <laughs> then I was like pretty lost. It was like pretty depressing at that time uh, because I didn't know what to do with my life. I'd done that for three or four years. And when you're doing that, you're isolated. You're not doing anything else. If you care about your career, you're not doing anything else. I didn't hang out with people that often. I, you know, just really isolated myself. I wasn't great at dating. Uh, any relationship I was in was just secondary to fighting. Everything was secondary to fighting. Um, so then I decided to move to Austin and then again, trying to start back from square one and got into a customer support role. Then I like, got into baking. Baking was just another avenue and outlet for creativity. Always been creative. I remember like back in the day when I would play with action figures, we just wouldn't go to the toy store to buy certain things. My parents also thought it was like ridiculous that I was into wrestling. So I'm talking about like WWE <laughs> and like fake wrestling. So I would like draw like championship title belts and I would like cut them out and then put them on my action figures and stuff like that. So I was like always been creative guy, like drawing and just like introverted kind of kept to myself and just like made up like stories. Um, but yeah. And then got into pickleball. And this is a very, I, I don't know if I'm going on a tangent at this point, but um, yeah, into pickleball and I'll kind of let you uh, run with the next questions from there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, I mean, I can imagine that being a fighter is a tough journey and uh, I didn't even, I wouldn't even consider doing it. So, you know, <laughs> you did. So <laughs> it's not, yeah, I, I can't even imagine how tough that is getting punched in the face, like, uh, yeah, on a regular basis. So. Yeah. So, but on to pickleball then. So, when did you know that you? Well, okay. First of all, like, when did you f first take up pickleball? Hi, Mark Mars here. I hope you're enjoying the show. This podcast is sponsored in part by the Pickleball Addiction Store and newsletter. To support the show, please check out the Pickleball Addiction Store at pickleballaddiction.co, where we stock a wide range of paddles, balls, nets, and other accessories. Use coupon code POD10. That's P O D one zero to get 10% off your first purchase. You can also check out the Pickleball Addiction newsletter at pickleballaddiction.news, where we cover the latest news in pickleball from the UK and around the world. Thanks for your support. And now back to the show. 2020, I don't know if it was necessarily because of COVID. It was actually, I was going on a trip. So I actually lived down the street from courts here, a very popular course called the Pan Am Courts. Always drive by it, never knew what those people were doing, and it just never occurred to me. And then my friend invited me on a trip to his house in Mexico in Chicala. It's about 45 minutes north of Puerto Vallarta, and he had some community courts there, and he always talked about it. And he's like, dude, I'm going to introduce you to pickleball. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I'm totally in. As soon as I played, I was terrible, but I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to get into this because I, I, until then... Up until then, I hadn't found anything that was maybe not comparable comparable to jiu-jitsu or MMA, but just something that was physical, something that required strategy, something that yeah. allowed me to socialize and make friends, something that had, yeah, just a physical component and just like something that allowed me to focus my attention on other than work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, it yeah it does cover quite a lot. There is something about it. It does cover lots of different aspects compared to like other sports. Even uh, I mean, have you done the other racket sports in the past before before that? No, my dad tried to get me into tennis and ping pong, and it just never clicked. So I, I yeah, I was just never clicked. Yeah, yeah. I had this. Uh, I, I always. I can't even remember. I'm repeating myself from a different podcast now. But like when I was a kid, I played some tennis. Like when I was really young, just with a like over the park, like with some friends, and I was pretty good at it. Like just off the bat, like naturally. And uh, but I never like followed it through. Never carried on. And then like so, I've always looked back and gone, "Oh, I could I could have probably been pretty good at tennis if I just stuck to it, you know." But then when pickleball came along, I was like, "Oh, now I can like maybe like live my dream again. I can like, do that." But then I realized. That had I carried on with tennis, I'd be like way better at pickleball. <laughs> it's kind of gone full circle. It's actually, I thought I thought I was going to be able to rediscover something I didn't get, and actually, you know, all the tennis players are the better players. So, um, yeah, right. <laughs> so, when when did you know you wanted to do something more than just play in pickleball? I think that's always happened to me. Anytime I like participate in something, I'm always mm-hmm. like, I never just want to watch. I never just want to be just like a bystander. I always wanted to like take part in something. And for pickleball, I was like, this is exciting. And not only that, but I actually genuinely am interested in pickleball and I really, really enjoy like playing. So if I enjoy it, if I love doing it, and I'm genuinely interested and have like general curiosity, genuine curiosity for it, then why not pursue it in some fashion? And there's also a combination of a lot of things, right? Like, uh, one, do I, did I see a deficiency or like, was what I am pursuing absent in the industry itself? And in a way it was like, there are probably people doing podcast interviews, but how, were they in terms of their quality and the expectations that I have, there wasn't really anything I was listening to personally. And then it also came around this time where I got laid off from, well, I guess I was given the decision to um, quit and take severance or be laid off. And it was from this company where I was traveling at the time, got a call from my coworker or text from my coworker. And he said, Hey, are you in the meeting right now? And I was like, "Uh, no, I'm not what's going on. And he's like, Oh, do you want the good news or do you want the news now or later? And I was just like, yeah, just give it to me now. And he's just like, yeah, uh, they're shutting down the tech hub in Austin. And this is where I was a UX designer at the time. And which actually now that I look back, it's not that far. It's not that long ago at all. This was back in like February. And uh, yeah, I was just like, cool. Uh, I will take the severance and just pursue my own thing. So it was at a time where I was, I just didn't feel fulfilled with what I was doing. So I was like, it's time to just t- take the gamble, take the chance and pursue this, pursue some idea that I have. And when I saw the thing with pickleball, it wasn't just podcast interviews. I saw that a lot of the design and the aesthetic of pickleball wasn't something that I'm particularly fond of. And I was like, okay, there's definitely an opportunity there as well. So like, okay, so this thing, these things are coming naturally to me of what I want to do. And not only is it like natural to me, but it's also absent from the space. 
So I was yeah. like, okay, cool. Like, what? I'm not going to repeat anything that anyone's already doing in a sense. So why not just pursue it? Um, so yeah, just gave it a shot. And then because I had that like epiphany or realization, I also wanted to make a big change in my life. And that just comes down to who would this, who would, who would this force me to become like pursuing this journey? And I just knew I had to try that because I was like, I don't know if what I'm doing right now is going to turn me into a person that I am proud of in the future. And that was just mm -hmm. like working from someone else and, you know, just grinding through every week without any real purpose or fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have a day job right now. You're working full time in doing pickable stuff. Yeah, this is my day job now, uh, YouTube content creation and then pursuing like, uh, I wouldn't call it filmmaking, probably more like videography and photography and just a little bit of everything. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that then, the videography and, and those kind of things. Is that, that's, that's, is that for other uh, media outlets that like you're creating content for? Like, what is that? Yeah, so even throughout this journey that I started, like, yeah, it was, I was like the original plan is to become like a YouTube content creator. But along this journey, I've also learned about like cameras and equipment and also how to develop my style on YouTube. Cause that's like, that's what appealed to me about YouTube in the first place. Right. It's like how engaging can this content be? How fun and creative can people be? And that's really what drew me to YouTube and what I wanted to pursue. So yeah, I just like find videos on YouTube of people doing like cinematic filmmaking, like what, what makes a video, how do you make something cinematic or like cinematography? Yeah. It's the lens, it's the lighting, it's the angles, it's the composition. It's all these like fascinating things because actually another like weird, like fun fact is that when I was younger, I always wanted to be an actor and you can like ask my brother and my family members is just so ridiculous but i wanted to be an actor so now i've always had that curiosity like if people always ask me like what shows you're watching and i've always like i don't watch a lot of shows but i watch a lot of movies always been more into movies so just learning about all that stuff and like how i can apply that but i think your question was like am i doing that for am i essentially like freelancing not yet I've had, I've been asked for some opportunities, but I think right now I have to say no because I'm in a period of like, I'm more at the point where I'm at right now, I'm more focused on growth and I, I just have to be better. And I don't think it wouldn't be fair for me to accept a role for someone else who's paying me for experience mm -hmm. that I don't necessarily feel like I have at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, you know what? I should. I I was think, looking at the production level the other day, just on your gear. The when you uh, interviewed the founder of the of Gearbox, and I think that was during the solar eclipse as well. So it was like a little bit darker, but you had some good lighting going on. And I just thought, man, your the production is like because you had two cameras, right? One to on him, one on you. Like uh, and yeah, it's so simple, right? Just an interview, but like the way that you put it together. It made it really engaging, and uh, now it makes sense why. <laughs> it's 
it's great to hear, man. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, like that's another thing. Like, you know, a lot of podcasts and interviews, I don't really see that happening to a degree, at least the in-person, right? Um, and again, goes back to who would it force me to become? Like, I'd have to buy these cameras. I remember the first time I picked up a camera, I had no idea what ISO, shutter, and aperture and all those things were. It's just so intimidating to have to go yeah. into like a menu screen. But um, yeah, like it's just, uh, it's all an enjoyable part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, so let's stick, let's stay with the podcast for now then. So, you know, can you share some of like the most like interesting discussions you've had on your podcast or the, or the guests you've had? I mean, obviously we don't upset the other people, but like, you know, what, what have you found like interesting when you've, when you've spoken to people, uh, if you can share some of those, those, those moments that you've are memorable for you. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, I think the interesting stuff is when you can hear things like retroactively. It, it, I don't know if I'm describing that right. Like, I think something that's always interesting is like one example is when I had Will, uh, Pickleball Will on and he's telling me about like stories about Chris Olson Pickleball Studio and just like <laughs> yeah. how he got how he got three five at best. It's like these hilarious stories that you hear from like that happened, you know, in the past, but like what is the backstory behind why those things came about? Um so hearing that and like Dale Young from Six Zero, of course he's got a very interesting background coming from spending ten years in Africa building um water wells and helping build that infrastructure. And now he's got arguably the most innovative and most sought after paddle gear right now. And to be able to do that against legacy brands and also brands that are funded with a lot more money is incredibly, uh, it's just incredibly interesting because it's so understated and overlooked how difficult that is to do to not only not have the funding, but also to say no to outside investors. Mm -hmm. And that's just such a commendable trait that I think people overlook. Like that's the magic of pickleball, right? Is because we don't have massive corporations in the industry yet that are trying to, uh, that, that can take over. Like why is Vatic pro? Why is six zero? Why are these smaller brands? Why are their paddles more seen on the pickleball courts than some of these bigger brands? And mm -hmm. not to say that there's anything particularly wrong with them, these bigger brands, but when they start thinking that they can use money and their big pockets to, purchase this magic, if you will, that these smaller brands have, it's just the wrong way to go about it. As soon as you start taking money from the machine, then that magic disappears. And so I say this to say that like, it's a very commendable trait. And I hats off to these guys for not giving in and not selling their soul in a way. And, you know, like believing that what they provide and offer to the community is sustainable over a long period of time. Um, so yeah, back to it, like Daryl Wang from Vatic Pro, very interesting story, like 25 year old kid, right? Like had a competitive swimming background, 
and then his dad is in manufacturing. Now he um, got into pat, uh, pickleball, but not just that, like how did he find his niche? He found his niche by providing people with a superior product, a high quality product at a very affordable price. That again, like to take hit on margins, you can call it what you want that maybe he's like undercutting people or he, what he's doing right now isn't going to be sustainable long term. Mm-hmm. But he broke a he broke a barrier in the system of pickleball. People, sh- I can't say people shouldn't be paying over two hundred dollars, but people should question whether what they're paying for is equivalent to the value that is being projected. And I don't yeah. think that it is. And it's the fact that pickleball is in it is in its nascent stage or infancy and people are taking advantage of that is not great for the long-term vision of the sport but hmm. for the people that are providing opportunities and value for that is equivalent to uh what it net what it technically what it kind of should be that is what we should be like praising and looking for is people who are helping grow the sport by not taking advantage of people. Um, so I think like, yeah, sorry, back to the stories um, and interesting people. Yeah. I think he's like the, that guy's very interesting. I've had Steve Kuhn who's God at the point we are at now in the sport. I say that guy because people always talk about how he's like this God. Right. And or just someone who deserves a lot of praise. And I actually do agree with that because he has this, he had a vision and now he's been driven out. And I think that can go back to that thing about money is when you start taking money from outside investors, they don't have the vision that you have. They tried to buy your vision. And what it ultimately led to is you're, you being driven out of your own product, your own baby. Like that's what he created and he created something great. And there are faults of like, maybe he doesn't know how to generate revenue for what he created. And that is of course a very big concern, but um, I, there could have been different ways that that could have been addressed. Um, Chris Olson, of course, he has a background speed cubing and he was the director of uh, the DP, which I believe is director of photography for a Netflix documentary, Speed Cubers. Like one of his channel has 88,000 subscribers. And then not only that, he has another channel, a YouTube channel that has like 12,000 or 20,000. It's on like uh, uh, video editing and I think photo, photo editing. It's kind of like mm-hmm. a educational piece. And then now, of course, he's got one of, he is the most accredited and sought after paddle reviewers who he has an incredible story. I know I'm going on with this, but that's great. Essentially it all comes down to like authenticity. And Chris is another one of those guys who is authentic and he sticks to his guns. He has not taken money from outside people who are trying to buy what he has. Mm-hmm. And to say no to that again, comes down to some, when you're offered six figures and you can do the exact same thing you're doing, but you still feel like there's something wrong with that. 
and you don't have to tell people this stuff. You can do it behind the scenes, but Chris is not doing that. He's not taking that money. He's continuing to do exactly what he's doing. And he just believes in, in, in what he's doing. And he's, it's like this, uh, this idea of delayed gratification, right? We can't see our, the final product right now, but to be able to continue that path and forge your own path without being able to see the result right now is again, a very like commendable, like trait, and it's not easy to do at all. Um, but yeah, sorry. I, I feel like I want, that was my soapbox. <laughs> Honestly, that was, uh, that was, that was really good and really interesting. And you know, you always joke on your podcast about you can't get through an episode without mentioning Chris Olsen. And I was wondering whether you'd get through <laughs> an episode with me without mentioning Chris Olsen and you, and you failed. You didn't. <laughs> Now it's like leaking over to other podcasts. Yeah, there you go, Chris. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's good. I, was, I was kind of waiting for it. So, uh, you know, I was gonna, I was going to mention it at the end if you, if you didn't, uh, if it didn't come up. So, excellent. No, that was great. Um, yeah, some great people there, and like definitely really interesting stories. And um, you know, especially with Steve Kuhn, like you know when you interviewed him to compare to like what's happened now, it's really interesting to kind of see, you know, how that all transpired. And yeah, obviously Chris is a fantastic, uh, you know, he's a great host as well of his podcast. So, and Will as well, you know, he like, they, they're a great team. Yeah. Their podcast is great. It's, uh, of, of all the like recaps, they just seem the most genuine. It doesn't seem like they're trying to, clickbait people or create highlights that uh, like create sensationalism or anything like that. So yeah, I really enjoy it. It's just, it's great to see just not average, but they act average. They, they don't act out of, they don't, they don't act like they're too big for this world. Right. They just seem like genuine, like everyday people who just want to have a good conversation for like anyone who missed nationals or anyone who missed the news. And they have, yeah, I like their takes and their perspectives on stuff too. Yeah. There you go. They even act 3.5 at best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Okay. So, so uh, what do you enjoy most then about running the podcast? I guess this is, we might have been covering this. Like you, you had like an expectation of like what you wanted to do going into it. Like what, like with the reality, like, is there anything that's come out of that? You think actually, you know, I didn't expect that, but I love that this has happened. Hmm. I think the editing has now become a little bit redundant and I just have to find a way to make that not so redundant and interesting. I think it's just a good, another good challenge something that I do enjoy is setting up the studio. And at this point, I'm pretty much only looking to do in-person interviews because mm. like if we had this conversation in person, it would, it really would be completely different. Like there's just, you can't, uh, you can't simulate the energy that people have when they're in physical presence. So, mm -hmm. um, I do really enjoy like setting up a studio, setting up the lighting, like getting the cameras working. There's always a chance that something's going to mess up, but it's always like this constant, like 
how can I make this more engaging? How can I make this more interesting? Um, I think one thing that I learned from a friend, her name is Pamela. She was a very like accomplished podcast producer. Something that I'm always in like learning about is how can I make these conversations more engaging as well? And something that she told me that she did with hers, she has a podcast called Superhumans, and yeah, she would do a 15 minute screening call. And that was something that I took from her. And it was like pretty much before every single podcast, even if I ever confirm a guest, I always have a screening call and I have the set of questions that I ask. And that helps me like get excited about the guest, helps me kind of understand what angle are we taking? What's the story that we're doing? What would make their time worthwhile? Because while I do want to get them on my podcast, I have to make sure like, cool, like, how can this be worthwhile for this guest? And so like, always trying to figure out, like, how can we keep up with the way somewhat of like, audiences now, like, what are they into? What do they like to listen to? And I try not to guess too much of that stuff. But I think there's definitely some truth to understanding your audience and what they what kind of piques their curiosity. Because asking for an hour of someone's time is a lot to ask for nowadays. And mm -hmm. I just am just trying my best to make it worthwhile. So yeah, yeah the, the podcast is, I think that's become a little bit less creative uh, compared to the other things I'm doing, but it's still like just having conversations is, I mean, it's like in, invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of like where you play now, do you still, do you play at those Pan Am courts that are down the road that you wonder, wonder what they were doing there? Oh man. Like before we were having this, before we started, before we hit record and we we're talking about like just lack of infrastructure, uh, Austin's kind of got that problem right now. This is just for the time being, people are working on solving that problem, but the Pan Am courts are insane They're It's like people always equate it to a slip and slide. The just, it's by the city and the city won't invest in something that brings genuine joy and people together in a nonviolent way. And I guess that really probably just describes what community is, but those courts are like slippery. The courts haven't been resurfaced in God knows how long. And there's like frequently just trash everywhere. The nets are always like pretty dumpy. And well, what's cool is you can't replicate that. And while that may have been the court I started off at, I don't always play there now, but I did create a video on it. And a lot of people start there and it's just got this like, I haven't seen an atmosphere and like ambiance similar to Pan Am. Just people, yeah, I don't know how to describe it. It's just so many Good people vibe. like getting along. Yeah, the vibe is just like unmatched. And it's weird because just imagine like a perfectly square box. Half of it is pickleball. The other half can be futsal. It can be roller derby. I've seen bicycle, polo, which was insane what those people were doing. <laughs> um, yeah. Just like talent wise. And yeah, there's always like random things that I've seen like workout classes being held on that surface too. Uh, but yeah, long story short, I don't play there as often, but 
it's definitely like it's still got its charm. Yeah, yeah. So where do, where do you play now then? Do you play it's outdoor courts, I assume? Yeah, so we don't have any indoor courts yet. They're they're in the works, but let's see. I usually play at Sark, South Austin Rec Center. That's got two permanent nets and six, I think six spots for ter temporary. And that's like a, another like city neighborhood park. That's got like really good. There's been pros who started off there and pros who still go there just to get practice in, but they don't play like open play, but there's like now some pros who've started there and then some qualifying pros who actually do play like the open play there, which is great. It's got another, like, it's fun. It's good. It's not like Pan Am in terms of vibe, but it is very good in terms of competition and that we like run two Kings courts, which is also like always great. And let's see, there's some hotel courts. It's funny. They have like a private lock. They have like a, they have like a coded lock. Basically, I don't know who found the code first, but once that person found the code out, it did not take long for like basically the entire pick wall <laughs> scene to just get in there and like break into that place and play. Cause it's like three very good, three very good uh, courts and it's, there's no open play. It's strictly like bring your own group. And we've seen pros there like Stack Strude when he was here for a tournament, DJ Young, C Zane, Grant Bond. Stefan Alvern. Never seen Jack Monroe there, but I know I've seen him play when I've seen clips. But yeah, some like really good talent goes through there. Um, again, the infrastructure isn't uh, all there. So there's a lot of like, I'm sure there's a lot of private courts that people go to. Yeah. Well, I know you're really short across the US, right? I mean, with Pickler opening up, was it three or 500 locations? Uh, I know what you said, what you described sounds like a dream compared to the UK, but I, I know that like, that, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure coming and it's just not enough. They can't build, they can't build the courts fast enough right now, right? In most places. Like there's a lot of demand and the infrastructure is coming slowly and you just don't know if, you don't really know how long pickwall is going to be around at this rate. And you're like, I, you, like Carl Schmitz has said, crawl, walk, run model. And you just want to be careful. Mm -hmm. No. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. So <clears throat> like what's your equipment of choice then at the moment? Like what, what paddle are you using? Um, the balls you're using. So um, we had a, what, I had the, there's a, a woman called Thadia Locke, who's the number one women's uh, player and uh, in the UK. And she 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 went out to the, the US to play some APP recently, and they were playing durables. I think we just don't have durables like in the UK. We don't have generally that in tournaments. It's the Franklin X40s, and like we play a lot indoor balls, so like a lot of softer balls generally as well. Um, so the durables, like she was like, oh man, I think you have to like because they egg like really badly and like they don't change the ball and the ball until the ball splits so when it eggs like you've got to like it's kind of a learning process to understand like what's going to happen with that ball but that's, that's a side story but you know if you've got if you've got a comment on that but also interested like what it is that you like to use right now yeah i really think those dura bars dura balls are they need to be fixed or replaced it's really unless there's like an intention bef to having 
like an intended result to have intended outcome to having an oblong shaped ball. It's <laughs> very rudimentary. I, I can see, I'm sure there's money involved. I'm sure there's businesses involved, but to keep that going is absolutely just like archaic. Like you're talking about advancing the sport and the ball is just not durable, which is weird because it's called Dura and you're like, Dura is indurable and it's not durable by any means. And uh-huh. I get that they're like saying like, oh, well, the, you know, the, the, the opposing competition is Franklin and they're a, lot, a, a softer ball. I was like, okay, but can you not make a ball that at least doesn't go egg shaped? And you're starting to see that now, like Selkirk put out their ball. Honestly, I, I like that ball a lot. I like the color. It's a muted green and it doesn't crack as easily. I actually haven't cracked a single one yet. And we're talking Austin is basically now at like, uh, I guess like 50, 60 degrees. Um, yeah. It's getting cold. So you're, you're seeing the test of those balls and they don't go oblong. And I do have some gearbox balls. Yola sent me some balls. And then am I missing anyone? I think that's it. Um, but yeah, in terms of equipment, man, I, I can't stop using the bread and butter filth. Like mm-hmm. Will, Will, I think first had put me onto it and I didn't like it at first. And then I like start and then Doug sent me one. And it took me actually forever to unbox because before that, I was I think I was playing with Volaire, and then that got vibe, it like started to vibrate, and I was like, oh, it's interesting. I I think it's time to move on to a, just a maybe I needed a new one because I had been playing with it so long. But I was like, I just want a different paddle, and then that's what brought me to Brendan Butterfield, and that's just a very specific paddle for me. It's uh, it's poppy and it's elongated which I've now realized is what I actually like in a paddle. And I actually just tested. There's these guys from Seattle and San Francisco who came in town. They're here for this tournament and they have a elongated, elongated handle. I think it's like, so like most handles, even on elongated paddles, like 5.5 inches, there's just like six inches or six and a half or something like that. It's super long. It basically looks like the Pro XR Zayn Navratil or Connor Garnett paddle, except theirs. Their brand is called Speed Up and it's thermoformed. And I actually really, really like that paddle because one, it's elongated, and two, it has that pop that I'm looking for. So, yeah, it's weird. I've tried the Gearbox, I've tried Six Zeros paddle, I've tried a lot of paddles, and they just don't, there's like something missing. They just don't do it for me. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, what about you? What are you using? Well, I'm using, talking about the $200 paddles, I'm using the Perseus, the, uh, the Ada Perseus. So mm-hmm. although I've, uh, I just started playing more with a Scorpius actually, and I, I prefer that, I think, um, I'm a retailer for Yola. So like I kind of get them at a different price, but I, I tell you what I did, like when I first started Pickleball, I only started playing like February and. I tried to look for the ball that I had no, no idea like what to get. So I had to look what was the best paddles, right, online. And I saw the Onyx Zeb 5, and it seemed to be like, oh, it gets good reviews. It's like top of the list, right? Um, but what I realized, you know, I've been looking at 
articles that were like two years old or whatever, right? Two, three years old. And then I, after I purchased it, it was in the, in the mail coming to me. And I realized when I was doing more research and really just watching loads of pickable stuff, I realized, hang on, I've, this paddle might have been good two years, three years ago, but it's like not the same as what the technology is now. And I thought, I don't know what to get. You know what? I'm just going to go for like Ben Johns is using uh, Yoda. Then I'm just going to get a Hyperion. And then I know I've like, at least I've got a half decent paddle to work with. So that was my, that was my thinking. There was like nothing beyond that. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's what I tend to use. That's cool. That Hyperion, man, what a game changer. Like that paddle really like was the first to, I, I don't know, it just introduced so many things. Uh, people really love that paddle. I saw so many of those on the courts, but then the Perseus it didn't really, I think if anyone else released that same paddle, it, it wouldn't be as popular. Mm. It's only just because mm. Ben Johns has his name. I'm sure it's like a decent paddle, but you're, now you're like, well, there's like a bunch of other paddles very similar to it that don't cost the same price. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like the Scorpius just for me, I think it's like, just works better. It just, uh, just a little bit more control in terms of, uh, yeah, I, having the elongated, I thought like that was, that was where I wanted to go. But like when, uh, the ball hits, hits the edge of the paddle more, it's like the smaller sweet spot that there's, cause I'm like still like not even 3.5 at best. I don't know. Like who knows over here? Cause like we, we have no idea what rate, rating anybody is, but, um, like, yeah, just having that better sweet spot is like better. And I don't feel like it affects like the power that I can get for drives or anything that much. So I just feel like, I just feel more com confident like playing with it um, than the, the Perseus right now. But That's awesome. Uh, Colin is probably like one of the coolest, most interesting players skill wise and just personality wise. The guy's like very low key. He's, I want to get the Scorpius just because of Colin. Like I fangirled when I like talked to him once. I just think that dude is like very interesting. His style of play is like incredible. I love like watching uh -huh. him play. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Bread and butter is uh, another one of those smaller companies, smaller paddle companies that are doing good. Like their marketing is awesome. Right. Like compared, you know, compared to like the other stuff, it's low budget or lower budget. You know that loco launch, the the loco paddle launch they did just recently. You know, it's just fun. Yeah, like, he's it's a, fun marketing. Yeah, he's like, he's a guru in that respect. Doug Sapusic, uh, he really like the industry is definitely fortunate to have a guy like him who had previously launched a successful company and then has come into pickleball. Um bringing that experience in. And there's also another thing that he's working on. I can't talk about it, but it's going to be, if he follows through with it, you're just going to laugh because you're like, this is genius marketing again. Like when people <laughs> talk about bread and butter, I think that's a standout feature. It's just the marketing, which is cool. Like if they were putting out an inferior product, that'd be one thing, but like that paddle of all the ones I tested for me personally, and just my style of play, like I love that paddle. It's great. It, I've been playing with it for a while now. Hasn't like delaminated, hasn't deformed, hasn't had any issues. I don't even, I think like the best thing is I, I don't even put any weight on it. And it's just like right out the box. It's exactly what I, it's exactly for me, but yeah, that guy's marketing is he, he's like, 
I eventually had to stop picking up phone calls from him because he would call me all the time and he'd be like, dude, I have this like idea. I have this another idea. And he's just like, <laughs> yeah, like if anyone needs marketing help, that's your guy to go to because he's thinking literally like outside the box. Like I look at a lot of the paddle companies now. I don't know if they're using the same, just like paddle companies using the same manufacturer or like, like a warehouse factory. I don't know if they're using the same marketing, but they're just like kind of copying each other. You're like, hey, it just seems like repetitive and redundant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they just all fall in the same sort of style, right? Like it's pretty, pretty like, it's just standard, right? There's nothing too interesting about it. It just does what it does. But yeah, they're kind of more viral. I guess it's, you know, viral, you got to be careful how you use that word, but it's kind of more viral stuff that, you know, bread and butter are interested in doing. And, yeah, he's kind of an out there kind of guy, right? He's got like a, he's got a big voice and uh, he's pas- passionate, so that helps too. <laughs> a, a big voice—that's a—that's a kind way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like just uh, like just to get your take on something. So like uh, you know the obviously we had fun this year with the MLP and the PPA and all of that stuff that ha- that happened. Um, so now we have got like uh, a joint schedule been uh, announced by PPA MLP for next season obviously the APP still still there doing their thing as well like what do you see like from in personally like in the future with these these tours do you think there's space for all of them do you think there's somebody who wins like what's your what's your take on on that I'm let's see so we have the PPA, the MLP, APP. I think those are the most dominant tours. There's like NPL and there's some other like PBX, I think. But we just focus on those three. Like APP is certainly doing something. I think for starters, all three of them should be in existence. I think that there's right now there's this issue where a large organization is trying to monopolize the entire market and the problem with that is that again comes back to this like point about magic and like what like you can't replicate what Ken Herman from APP is doing or Tom Webb who's like director of the marketing like that guy has invaluable experience he comes from F1 he comes from USA ski and snowboard he comes from Red Bull he comes from these massive brands and companies and you're tr- and in a way like what he's doing is he's now realizing like, we're not actually competing with PPA. We're our own entity. We're doing something different, which they're catering to the recreational players and they're building stories around people that are not pros. And that's also like very interesting and whether or not that sticks, I don't, I don't really know. It's hard because everyone's talking about how the APP isn't broadcasted on YouTube. And you're like, that's a big problem because we don't really know what you're doing. We don't know what's going on. Seeing clips on Instagram isn't sufficient. People do watch on the weekends and they do watch tournaments. I think the competition is great. You see Paris Todd, the Johnson brothers, Rob Nunnery, Dayescu, Susanna Barr, Megan Fudge. I won't go through like the entire list, but there are very talented people and they come through in the MLP or they come at these like tournaments like nationals and they compete just fine. And it's great because one, 
it's great for the players. They get competitive uh, pay and salary because what we do want is we want these people to be able to make a sufficient living and even beyond sufficient. We want them to have, eventually we want them to have these like lives, these like extravagant, like in a way extravagant lives. They don't have to be showy and flashy, but we do want this like, man, that's what I want to aspire to. The problem is like, I don't want to aspire to, to be someone who's getting paid the same salary as a teacher. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with te- uh, teachers, but they're incredibly undervalued, underpaid, but like, there's nothing really inspiring about that. But if we see people being paid like Tiger Woods, uh, like LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, all those guys, like that is super, super compelling. And then not just to the average person, but to companies as well. Companies are like, oh, that's what I want to buy into. That's who I want marketing this product. So, and then to that PPA and MLP thing, I think that's a very big mistake. Granted, like you have to take my thoughts with a grain of salt because I'm not seeing the back end, but from my perspective, the MLP is a completely different format and that's okay. Not just the format, but who has the most investors who has a very diverse set of investors. That's the MLP. There aren't, there aren't people like Kevin Durant, Tom Brady, Serena Williams, and, all these big names investing in the PPA, they're investing in the MLP and itch. And that's what we want. We want those guys. We want the The only time I really advocate for top down approach is when it comes to like word of mouth. Like, I think it's great to have a top down approach. Like you want those big names to be talking about pickleball. We Mm -hmm. want them to be like fascinated by it. But if the PPA is, buying out the MLP with the intentions of closing down that organization, that's just Mm. a big mistake. The PPA Mm. is known for what it's known for. Not that it can't shift, but it's known for what it's known for. And also like the PPA is just that it's an ongoing, like seasonal organization. Like it just happens kind of year round, but the MLP, that's just another event that, not just another event that is an event that people look forward to people travel to those just to spectate people don't travel to ppa just to spectate most of them are playing Mm -hmm. and that's okay too like create a thriving environment for the people who love playing to play like i think ppa has way bigger problems to worry about than the competition of mlp like like fix your playing atmosphere and experience for the people that are paying this money because there are way too many people upset about it. Yeah. And and this isn't like a they're not just being upset to be upset. It is a poor experience. And granted, these are growing pains, not knocking PPA at all. Like they're trying, they're certainly trying their best, but to think that buying out organizations or trying to like just throw money at things is the way to go about it. I, I don't think is the way. Um, there are certainly creative people to hire for these roles, but to just like, I don't know if, see, the thing is like, I don't know what their intention is with buying out MLP or like set, like coming to some settlement and agreement. But 
do I think like splitting the players up is right? No. Like I think the MLP players should play in the PPA, which I believe Steve Kuhn said at the time that that's what he wants. He's like, Hey, I don't care. Like just show up for MLP, but play PPA as well. And like, there also is an argument that players shouldn't be playing that often. Is, is that true? Is, yeah. Is that really an issue? Like, that's what you signed up for. There, there are NBA players and MLB players playing much more frequently than that. Mm-hmm. And like, if you have a family, I, I understand, but like, it's not any different from if you were to take on like an entrepreneurial route, which is somewhat what you are. Is like you don't want to be an independent contractor. You want to be like an entrepreneur of your uh, to your own degree. So. At the end of the day, like the competition is good. You want that competition because it it results in uh, like more pay for the players, but also like just leveling the experience. If you, if you see someone who's doing something better, then that should propel you to do it better. Not try to throw money at them to buy it out. It's like Mm. come up with your own solution and your own solution should be unique to the scenario and that, uh, you just create, like you just forge your own path, but yeah, it's so difficult to really talk on because, you know, you see the guy, Tom Dundon and you hear like the guy is trying to create a strong revenue stream for the organization. But from what I've heard is that the only cash flow positive organization under that entire umbrella of the is like conglomerate is I think pickleball central. So yeah. it's so difficult. It's like, how do you create, how do you get your money back in a way and not just uh, like burn through cash. And mm-hmm. that's just not something that I have a lot of experience to speak on, but just from my perspective on the whole scenario. Um, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting time like to be in the sport. You you want to keep everything grassroots, but you also want things to grow because they have deals and obligations they have to oblige to. They have the, you know that deal with Amazon and everything. And at the end of the day, Amazon doesn't care how you do it. Just get them the results that you want, that they want. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't even know. I didn't even think about it being on the cards that the MLP might be bought out and the owners might be bought out. Um, so that's kind of interesting in its own right. I mean, I totally agree. The PPA and the MLP, like it feels like they shouldn't be under one banner. But you know, I guess as well, they're trying to save costs from like event hire is expensive. They're trying to save costs by like kind of sharing that load, which kind of kind of makes sense. But for me, I think you're right. I think as well, it's the for me, it's like making the game a spectator sport. And that's like, so people turn up and pay for tickets, like at the venue, they want to come and watch it. But also for television, like I don't believe, there's this like belief that Pickleball isn't good for TV. Like I just don't believe that. I love watching it on TV. And I think, okay, like uh, there's, uh, you know, generally Pickleball is like, at least in the UK, right? And I still think it's the same in the US. It's a lot of older generations that have been watching it. And they're not, 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 so savvy with watching like streaming services or just streaming on YouTube and stuff like that. I I think making the production where people want to come and see it in person, like the people do tennis, want to watch it on 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 the television. 
for me, that feels like the revenue streams is going to make the money that's going to be able to fund the, the organization. And what working on that, I think, feels to me, as all, of course, I don't have the inner workings and understanding either, but t- for me, that's, that feels like something that's scalable. Yeah, I agree. Like, s- spend money on production. And they hired, like, there was this guy, this creative director, his name is Jake Lewis, and he's... I think he's no longer like necessarily fully associated with them, but like he was largely responsible for the way the production looks and the way like everything, the design and just how everything looks. But even just the production on just like the camera quality, you're like, why am I watching this non it's like any game that's not on championship court kind of has a fidelity of like a remote call like a zoom call you're like this is insane like yeah you want the sport to grow but if anyone turns this on and sees this this is like in a way unacceptable and you and you guys do bear that responsibility and i understand like that's probably incredibly difficult to have to travel to every single event like weekend after weekend and you're shutting stuff down bringing it back up but also like Tom Dundon's not like unfamiliar with how this works. The guy owns the North Carolina Hurricanes and it's not and you just need to find the right people to make this happen. But there's that and like going back to your point about making a spectator sport, one of my biggest gripes with MLP is how they keep redrafting and they keep like switching premier and challenger. You're like this is insane. In what world does that make? Well, okay. I'm probably like, okay. I'm getting a little like too emotional about it, but in my, <laughs> in my like perspective, how am I, if I'm a fan of, let's see the DC pickleball team, how am I supposed to stay loyal to them? If you guys keep switching the players. And also I have no, if I'm a casual fan, I have no idea what, challenger and premier really means and i don't think they do either because if teams are switching between them what is the distinction like what is the actual distinction between them but yeah the way they keep redrafting is like ridiculous like how am i like why do i really watch most why do people watch like most sports teams they like gravitate usually to a player or like a hometown, something like that. And you usually like rooting for like players who have been on the team or like, like you just have loyalty to what they've built. But if you keep rebuilding it, then there's nothing to be loyal to. Yeah. Well, I mean, I might be wrong, but like my understanding with the whole challenger premier thing was that, they were going to run two seasons. So all the teams in Premier were going to do that. And then all the teams were going to go into Challenger. And it was going to be based on like results as to who would finally get picked in season three to be in Premier and Challenger. Um, so I thought I thought that was how it was going to work. That Then it was going to be a permanent thing after season two. Um, uh, and then I know they were fixing something with the drafts, right? Where I think teams were going to, they were talking about like even which I don't think is going to happen, like players moving to a specific location and training together and all those kind of things. So I think they had plans at some point to like address those things. But yeah, 
so I think it would have been like, you know, how many points you had at the end of two seasons would be that could determine which division you win. So I think there was, it felt like there was quite a lot of the line um, for the owners to like make sure that like they got that right and that happened. Um, but like now, like if we get, if we're going to get emotional about like how they should be structuring that, like one of the, one of the most exciting things that I thought about with the, when I saw MLP was that they were going to have promotion and relegation. Um, because you know the i don't know if you've ever watched soccer but like the english premier league and uh and all of uh, english soccer every division has promotion and relegation and that's like one of the things that makes it so um compelling is because even the teams at the bottom are fighting for something and it's it's real right so you, you go down a division all the players wages go down your sponsorships go down like you know it's it's something you don't want to be so now like <clears throat> I think you, if you don't, if you saw like the announcement of the new schedule, it's going to be more like a NFL style division. So you're going to have team uh, divisions um, with four teams in each, and then like a playoffs, like you do with kind of NFL. But again, you know, all the teams end up starting over again the next year. There's no impact to them finishing last in their division. They just go again and they get a better pick in the draft the next year or whatever. Um, so, um, yeah. Promotion and relegation was like such a big thing for me, but I understand that's not appealing to the owners of the business, the comp- the, the teams that don't want to be the, the team in the challenger division that's getting less money and less interest. So I can see that, but for me, that was a miss. Like I think I had it right first time around. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Again, so that just speaks to my ignorance on this like whole topic. Like I wasn't like fully aware of like how all that works, but I mean, in, I'm very like, I think people are calling me a peacekeeper. So I'm always going to like give like devil's advocate kind of like perspective, but like pickleball has opportunity to do what other sports aren't. So like the way you're talking about it and the information you provided that I, that I wasn't uh, fully aware of before is like, that's great. In in many respects it is because it's like, we can forge our own path, right? Like we don't have to follow the model that other sports are. And I, and yeah. I think it's interesting it's like cool like do it how you want and i guess it just comes down to right now the sport is in growing pains again and it probably will be for a while because it's, it just means people are trying things out which is great yeah yeah and hey, we'll still watch it it's still fun <laughs> yeah okay so you talk to a lot of people um through your podcast just in general probably now that you've kind of kind of become more established in the space like what is it you see happening in in pickleball over the next 12 24 months like is there anything that you, you see coming that you're excited about um <laughs> let's see i'm trying to think of like what are some of the biggest things like that you usually see well like what affects most people's like everyday like playing experience probably going to see more facilities again i'm going to share like both sides of every both sides of the coin you're going to see a lot of facilities but you're also going to see a lot of people who don't understand how to operate a facility right properly they just a lot of people get into the sport because they love it but do they love the idea of business do they love the idea of learning how to operate things at any scale and operating it properly and correctly. So uh, I've talked to a lot of founders and uh, business owners and they're like, uh, 
yeah, you're going to see a lot of these franchises appear, but they're going to be run by people who just love the game, but they don't love business and they don't understand business. So that is pretty dangerous because you're going to see people faulting on debts, which isn't great. That could also be a very bare perspective, which I'll, it's kind of always easy to come up with a bare perspective, but on the, like on a, like a, not on a bull perspective, it's going to give more opportunity for investors. People are going to be like, cool, if it works, then I want to buy into it or I can take over it. Like there are going to be experienced people who are sitting back and they're like, let's watch this unfold. And then I think paddle companies, gosh, someone mentioned it. There's like over 350 new paddle companies coming into the new year. Uh, I can just look at that as just saturation, a lot of saturation. Mm -hmm. And it's very rare to meet people like Dale Young, who are like innovating, like Rafael Filippini, who's innovating, not saying that their products are the best, but these are people who do understand engineering, do understand composites. They do understand how to develop and design a product. And they're doing it from a more technical perspective. And then on the flip side, you have people who are just picking from a catalog and that can sometimes resonate with people too. And so it's just, it's going to cater. It's going to be everywhere, but I can definitely see power from the people I've spoken to and the prototypes I've tested. Power is going to be a huge thing. And I'm very intrigued to see like how that affects the game. Mm. I think like bangers, bangers, if you will, they're going to come back in and they're going to, you're going to start to see a lot more like educational content on YouTube being like, how do we solve this problem of bangers? And that's going to shift. You're going to see the gameplay shift. You see all these younger cats like Jack Monroe. And uh, I don't know how old Roscoe Bellamy is, but they played against the Johns at nationals. They won a game against them. Granted, Ben did roll his ankle. And speaking from experience, that's not great, but he did roll his ankle. He beat them. I don't know why the match was like a three out of five, but they, the Johns beat them for the first two games, but you are still seeing these young cats like Wyatt Stone, Hayden Patrick Quinn and guys who have been in the scene for a little while, but you know, like younger kids because it's coming through college as well. And you're starting to see like, it's great because the sports being introduced and aware at younger ages. So you're starting to see like young kids like, oh man, this is not only like incredibly fun, but I can be like some of these athletes. And again, this goes back to the, uh, the that topic of like kids need something to aspire to besides just like, I hate to say it, but they have to like aspire to something besides just fun. And unfortunately the world we live in is that money is a huge motivation when they realize once they have the money, they realize like it wasn't actually all about the money, but initially from like that, uh, like a beginner's eye, like the money is very compelling. So when the sport has that, it's makes it very interesting, right? Like you yeah. like, you want that lavish lifestyle. You want to be able to provide for your family. You want to be able to like buy your dream car. You want people to have those dreams and, so there's like the paddle stuff. Uh, be interesting to see how these leagues turn out. You know, like 
some people didn't show up at that USA Nationals, which is like very interesting. So mm-hmm. I think you're going to see like a lot more athletic players um, to see more tennis players coming into the sport, which is cool. Like they're introducing a different style of gameplay. And what else is happening? Like businesses are getting more creative as far as what they can offer, which is great for people like us, the consumer, because it brings prices down. Like for a while it's been paddles, but then people are coming out with more accessories like grips, lead tape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think lead tape is not a huge financial burden to begin with because you just buy lead tape from Dick's like a sporting goods store and you just buy it for like the sake of golf. Like golfers have been using it for a long time, I guess. Um, Hopefully content creation becomes like just more interesting and creative. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) I I think all of that. Wow. You so you, you're being interviewed now, Ryan, you know, you don't, you don't have to ask me the questions, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, I mean, for me in the UK, like, uh, there's so much like that's just got to follow in the footsteps of what you're doing in the US. And I guess you know, there's going to be lessons that are learned from doing business and starting things up in the US that we can learn from and not make the same mistakes. But, you know, like I was saying before we started recording, you know, we don't have courts yet. We're just playing on badminton courts. Like, um, there's not really a proper pro scene by any means at the moment so people still have day jobs they they do there's not really any money in the in sport in that respect uh, yet um but it's coming it's definitely coming you can feel the groundswell there's lots of there's lots of stuff happening um and it's growing everywhere you know the number of players attending tournaments the number of tournaments the number of um events that are taking place um if there's, there's word of facilities that are get, they're getting that are in progress, so it's coming. Um, it's just uh, in, in the UK. There's just we're just we're just quite far behind, and we just I'm just looking forward to 12, 24 months down the road when we we've got some play, better places to play and and just things are more established. Really, yeah. Hopefully, like it's interesting because you're in the UK and you talking about like the infrastructure not being there. Hopefully, that's something within the next like one to two years that's changed is it's pickleball just having a more global presence like international mm-hmm. presence because there's no doubt that there's talented people like like you said that i already Thadia, forgot her yeah. name but Thadia, like she came over to states and you're like she's the only thing separating the international players against like the u.s-based players is really just uh location the skill wise they're just as competitive there's guys in australia like joey wild mitch hargraves and uh there's like us i think there's like a taiwanese based uh pro as well this like a female pro mm-hmm. who like, came to the states to practice but yeah and then also just hopefully more of these people staying right they had those like stats within the past year where they're like oh like 38 million people played that's great like how do we make sure that they stay and i mm-hmm. think that's also a problem to address it's a good problem to have but it's also like how do we make it stick how do we make sure that that they don't just pick up a paddle and then that's the last time that they play for the first how do we make sure that the first time they play isn't the last time that they play Mm -hmm. okay um 
So what what plans do you have for building Pickleball over the next 12, 24 months? Is there anything you can share you, that, you, that you're working on? Um, or is it still new enough that <laughs> you haven't kind of figured that stuff out yet? Man, how much time do we have? Uh, I'm going to go <laughs> on another... <laughs> I'm going to go on another, another long one. I'm, as you could tell, I'm not great at, I haven't yet figured out how to, uh, distill things down, uh, more concisely, but let's see. So I have my like, podcast. I did some like vlogs. I did like place. I did like this series called places and I just keep getting like inspiration from outside the industry and something I'm trying to do. So I had like, yeah, this like vlogs and just travel things, but my coach, Greg Souders from standard Jiu Jitsu inspired me. He's always inspired me. And mostly it's his way of thinking and teaching and it was applied to me when I was fighting, but because I was fighting, I, I didn't really understand what was happening. And now I'm starting to become more curious about it. And I've created a couple videos in an educational series that applies some of the principles that he taught me. And again, this comes down to me not these like these ideas being absent in the space, the a problem that I see with the educational aspect of YouTube content creators and just in general in pickleball is that people are just teaching techniques that mm. people are just showing you, this is how to hit a third shot drop. This is how to hit a third shot drive. This is how to dink and they're teaching skills in isolation. But the thing is, is that it, those aren't even skills per se, they're techniques. And the thing is like skill isn't performed in a vacuum mm. and there's, and I've shown in videos that we need context. So what I'm getting at is my coach had been applying this thing called the ecological approach and it's, he'd been applying it. Right. And he's become now a. I don't know the right word for it, but he's become very well known in the industry, in the sport of jujitsu and amongst coaches and athletes, because he shifted the way people look at developing skill. And it comes from, you know, like a, a few other people, Rob Gray, um, obviously like the very beginning people is like, uh, Nikolai Bernstein and like James Gibson It's a lot of it comes from motor learning. And the thing is that I see in pickleball coaching is people are just regurgitating information. They're just like kind of telling people what they've heard or they're taking yeah. anecdotal experience without it being research-based, without it being applied in multiple settings. And I don't think something is value is, I think, I don't think something can be truly valuable if it can't really be applied to multiple settings because mm -hmm. then you're not really like solving a problem and so I guess what I'm getting at is I'm trying to teach, I'm trying to like fill this void of how pickleball is being taught 
using this ecological approach, using what I've learned from my coach. And I still have conversations with him on the phone regularly because uh, I'm still learning this, but I'm trying to provide it to more people because a problem I'm seeing is also people are plateauing. People don't understand. They think that the game is just a series of movements, but it's not. The game is problem solving. The ecological approach is based on yeah. the relationship of a performer or a learner with the environment. Skill, skill is not something innate. It's not something that's just within us. Skill is based on our perception of the environment and our environment provides us affordances. Affordances isn't a term that's specific to ecological approach. Affordances was a term I learned even in design. Affordances just means of opportunities for action. You look at a mug. We all know just by looking at this mug that this is just a handle. Like you don't look at it like it, it's not like something that like an innate skill. Like again, like there's you look at it, you, you go into a building you've never seen before, or you're entering a building you've never seen before. You see a door handle. That's an affordance. It tells you what opportunities are there. Yeah. So I, the thing is like, I came out with this video on ball machines because I think that's such an ineffective way to teach people how to develop a skill. And people think that like doing rote repetition is how you develop a skill, but that's just simply the least effective method. And, and I like put this video out and just people just didn't understand. They're just like, Oh, well, I, I've learned how to do like, uh, I learned how to do my drive using this using, but I'm like, the skill isn't just being able to perform the, the movement. The skill is being able to recognize what's happening and being able to problem solve and being able to adapt to the scenario in that specific situation. My coach would always tell me this term he speak, or this like phrase, he would say situations dictate tact situations dictate, dictate tactics. Mm -hmm. The thing about the ball machine is all the research that I looked into is that ball machines fail to help us develop a skill because we're looking at the wrong thing. We should, it's not about just like getting the ball. It's about these, they call it pre-context cues. It's like, mm -hmm. what is our opponent showing us? They're showing us a paddle face. They're showing us a movement with their body. And that's actually what we're, that information that we're picking up. So yeah, I'm trying to work on this educational series. And again, like another thing is like the static drilling where people's just feeding you balls. That's not, they have this term in ecological approach called representative design. And really your practice should be as closely representative to live gameplay as possible. That's not saying yeah. every practice session should be treated as a match. What it's saying is that your, your partner, your practice partner, your opponent should not be cooperative. They shouldn't just be feeding you a ball because yeah. that's not what happens in a live game. What happens in a live game is you have live resistance and there's, yeah, there's just uh, I, I say that because I'm going to end up coming up with some uh, practice design videos to help people understand like, what's a better use of your time? Is it someone just feeding you a ball or is it putting you in a scenario in a situation that you experience in live gameplay? or 
you might it might not be representative of live gameplay, but you are understanding how to problem solve. I think that's a problem right now is that people are plateauing because they think the game is just a series of movements, but it's to be an advanced player, you're solving problems. You're constantly solving problems and just movement itself is a problem you have to solve. Rafael Nadal, there's like a famous quote about him saying like, speaking to rote repetition and just saying like, no ball is exactly the same that you receive. Neither is your swing. The general like movement is probably very similar, but there's way too many possibilities. There's over 20,000 different possibilities of how a movement could be executed just based on muscles, like uh, your body positioning, muscles, nerves, everything, like everything comes into account, right? Like uh, you could be fatigued. You could be, you could be tired. You could have um, uh, just be experienced like performance stress, things like that. So there's just a lot of different factors that are into play. Um, so there's that. And then I am just trying to find more creative ways to make content engaging and fun for me to create. If it's fun for me to create and edit, then I have a good, uh, good, like amount of certainty that it's going to be fun to watch. So, um, uh, yeah, that's my soapbox again. That's probably yeah. like my third or fourth soapbox that I've been on. <laughs> now that that sounds really interesting. So that's something you're working on on right now, right? Yeah, it's difficult because I'm still trying to learn it as well. So I'm like reading books, watching or like reading articles. I need to talk to my coach because he is very well versed in it. It's crazy the amount of podcasts he's been put on because he basically broke the system of like we don't drill like they don't drill. They don't drill. A, the thing, common thing in jujitsu is you start a class with a 15 minute warm up. throow that right out the window. That's ridiculous. And then they'll teach you, they'll show you like a move, like everyone uh, probably familiar term is a rear naked choke. So be like, Hey, here's a rear naked choke. Here's how to do it. You can practice it for like 20 minutes and then we'll go into live, live, uh, situational sparring. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing for uh, pickleball right now, right? They just show you a technique. But is there really a right technique? Is what I'm showing you right for every individual? The idea behind the ecological approach is to promote self-organization, to promote exploration. You don't – you you want to tell people maybe like what they're looking for. You want to tell people why they're doing it but you don't want to show them how you want them to organize themselves around it and them to figure that solution out on themselves because they've done the research on like, why do people choke under pressure? Why are people clutch under pressure? Why does pressure not affect some people? And they did also find like there's good research behind the fact that if you're told how to do something through explicit instruction, those people tend to choke under pressure. They try to think about like how their body movement is like, as opposed to this external focus, there's uh, so many different factors, but it's so like fascinating, just understanding motor learning, right? Like I can, I'm almost certain 90% of the people who are showing pickleball content 
educational content don't understand motor learning. They don't understand what they're preaching. They understand from anecdotal perspective, they understand like what they're doing, but it's like, how can you relay this information to multiple people and it be the most effective and, a, and it be applicable to the widest audience. But mm. like, imagine trying to tell Riley Newman, this is how you hit a drop shot with a single arm. That guy self-organized and found his own solution that is fit for him because everyone varies in size, right? Everyone varies in size, weight, uh, physical capabilities. But that guy hits like, he hits like a two hand with everything. He also uses a pancake. So yeah, it's a a lot of people want to emulate what the top pros are doing. And that works to a certain degree, but I think they're missing what is actually happening. What is actually like, what is the problem that I'm solving and how can I like adapt myself to those scenarios? Yeah. Well, that's really, that's really interesting. I I really look forward to what you, you produce on that. So yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I think, uh, we're about an hour and a half now. I think it's a good time to, to wrap it up, but thanks for the conversation. It's been, uh, really, really interesting. I've really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, we signified a little bit here why inter- interview-based uh, stories are, are interesting. I've, I've really enjoyed hearing your story and, and what you're up to. So um, for people who want to follow you and, uh, you know, understand what it is that you're doing and want to follow along, like what is where's the best places for them to go? Yeah, uh, first off, just want to say thank you for this opportunity and thank you for taking the time to do this. I know it's very difficult in the early stages when you're starting and pursuing an idea and I've seen your channel it, and these things like take time, like again, delayed gratification, right? Like you see the, the videos and the amount of time does not, an effort does not necessarily equate to what you receive in terms of like viewership and things like that in the early stages. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you taking the time to do this and giving up an hour and a half of your time. It obviously sounds like you have children too. So to be able to do that, while you have kids um, means a lot. Um, as far as like how to find out more about what I'm doing and reach out to me to really get a sense of what I'm doing, go to youtube.com slash at building pickleball. You can also just go into the search bar and search uh, building pickleball. There's various playlists and different types of content. Like I just came back from the six zero event where it was like a release event. And then there's of course the podcast interviews and just other like fun creative videos and of course the educational series and if you want to reach out to me if you have any questions if there's anything i can help you out with granted it might take a while it took me like six days or more to get back to mark um <laughs> so i apologize about something i just get overwhelmed but just reach out to me on instagram at building pickleball and i usually share a lot of updates every now and then i'll put in the occasional like ridiculous meme but I try to provide updates on like what's going on and try to connect with everyone and just uh, make sure that you're aware of what's happening. But yeah, those are probably the two best ways. Okay. Well, well, thanks very much again, Brian. Um, um, it's been great speaking to you and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, man. Likewise. Thank you. And you too. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye.